0: If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. So if you will, open up to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I mentioned last week that uh, Paul is going to pause here for a moment and and put into perspective the works of Abraham and how his faith was seen by his actions and really puts into practice some of the things he's mentioned and will mention. So it's kind of, think of this as like a right in the middle. In fact, if you're going to divide the book, this would probably go with the last chapter. But uh, really right in here in this first middle part, Uh, to focus on the necessity of bringing Jews and Gentiles together. And he's going to talk about Abraham's life in a very interesting way. He's actually going to, in this book and um, and briefly in Galatians, compare uh, the city, or not the city, the people of Jerusalem, the Jews, uh, to uh, the New Testament church. And it's really an interesting way to put it into perspective. So let's read together. I want to focus on verses 1 through 8. What we'll do is I'll, I'll go through this uh, fairly quickly, and then we'll come back and we'll have some, some questions and some thoughts about it. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. I forgot to mention that last week, but uh, if you can follow along. It says, verse 1, chapter 4, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, that's his faith, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is, unac- is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So David and Abraham both are praising God for having a strong faith that leads to action. And he's going to talk about how basically the faith alone doesn't save, but also works don't alone save. So there has to be a kind of a combination of the two. And really, James puts that into good perspective. So, so Paul uses this patriarch Abraham as an example of someone who believed and then became obedient. And by his faith, he then put it into action. So the, the first part separated is an alone saving. And the second part alone is not going to save. Um, and it wasn't just his works. That God didn't look at his works and say, okay, I'm going to save you now. Uh, he had to believe. And he had to be then obedient to God. So again, putting them together. Uh, and it was also his, uh, his faith that led his family to follow God. Uh, he takes Sarai, his wife, and then they have Isaac, his son. He teaches his son about faith in God. Isaac, of all the patriarchs, probably, of course, his part in the scripture is about this big, but, uh, but Isaac really lived a good, faithful life. There's only a couple things he does that are a little questionable, uh, but then you've got Jacob, who's just a, he's a hot mess. I mean, he's just, there's all trouble everywhere you go, but Jacob knew his faith in God was going to be strong at a young age. Even though he faced some adversity, he trains his children to follow God. That's how Joseph becomes so strong in his faith and receiving visions from God. So the faith and works, both are essential. We can't put one above the other. So if someone says, and we talked about this in our class this morning in John chapter 3, that all you need to do is believe, well, Abraham believed. That was a great first step. It was accounted to him for righteousness. It was a good thing. But his faith... Led to obedience, and his obedience helped with that justification. Um, And remember that that's where it all begins. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it talks about without faith it's impossible to please God. So that's the first step, but it's not the only step. So we use the steps as an example for salvation, for baptism, but it's very simple. If I say I want to go to the stage, you know, am I on the stage? I know I'm on a step, right? So if you're going to follow in the ways of the Lord, you have to take each step in order to get to your destination. And faith is just one of those steps that is essential. Faith is, a, is where we start, it's that aha moment where I say, I believe in God. I asked the class this morning, I said, there are people today who believe that all you have to do is say a prayer or look to the heavens and say, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus. And there are literally thousands of denominations that teach, all you got to do is believe. That's all you got to do. You just got to believe, and that's all it is. Well, if that's the case, and believing in one God is all it takes, Jews believe in one God. Muslims believe in one God. Hindus believe in many gods, but they still believe in a chief God. Buddhism, you name the religion, uh, and uh, you can even talk about Scientology and other religions that see you, you as yourself a God. So just believing in God or a God is not enough to save. And that's the necessity of seeing the life and the role of Jesus, because Jesus says that it is through him salvation comes. He makes that declaration in John 14 and verse 6. Uh, so he, we recognize he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. So faith is important. It's essential, but it's only one step. In this process of getting to the area of salvation, if let's just say faith was enough, if all Abraham had to do was say, I believe in you, Lord, then what would have happened when God said, Go to the land I must tell you, and he said, No, I'm good. I just believe in you. What would have happened? Can you imagine? Uh, Yeah, I believe in you, God. Thanks for talking to me. I'm going to go about my business. No, God said, you need to get out of this country. You need to get out now. And so he has to literally start over. And it is by faith that he knew God and by faith and obedience that he followed God. And some of that will be uh, demonstrated in the next few stories. But uh, he actually was walking with the Lord. And recognized as a believer before he actually took the steps, which included circumcision, which is the next section. And so Abraham was justified by his faith, not by his circumcision. He was justified in this way in that he starts the steps, walking with God, with faith. Listen to what it says. Does the blessedness then come upon circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only uh, not only are of the circumcision but also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while he uh, while still uncircumcised so he says his faith helped him in this justification is the first step of faith that allowed him to move in the right direction and so he he compares this to a seal he compares it to, um, to again going down to just a step, but he starts his walk of faith while he is outside of the Jewish faith. So in a way, uh, this is rich, all right? Abraham walked among the Gentiles, right? Judaism does not become a religion for many years. This is the patriarchal age. It would be 400 plus years before the term of Judah or later of the Jews, it would be hundreds and hundreds of years. So Abraham's faith started him on the right path while he was uncircumcised. And so if Abraham, this is Paul's logic, if Abraham could start his journey uncircumcised, then who's to say that Gentiles can't start their journey being uncircumcised. So this is just the first point in a long list of things, but he starts this step of faith, and he starts it by saying, I believe. It was not enough. He's justified in the eyes of God, but it's not enough to do that alone. Um, Also, Paul uses this as a reminder that the Jews, uh, like their forefathers, have to come to the realization that Jesus is the Son of God. So while we might have lived a heathen lifestyle outside of Christ, we make the step of faith, and then we begin to live and act out that faith. We take the steps of salvation, and then after our baptism, we continue in steps. Um, Abraham's faith also comes into an old body, but he gets this fresh new spirit. He is revived, he's rejuvenated, and God blesses him for walking in faith. The third thing here is he's going to recognize that uh, his seed was also justified by faith and not the law. So let's read on down to verse 17. Uh, It says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, this this is a faith issue. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, wrath. for where there is no law, there is no transgression. So you have a command, you have a law, you break it, there's a sin. But before the law, who's to say what was good and not? This is before the Ten Commandments, remember? Therefore, verse 16, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, the faith that he had in God before the law was ever made, right? As it is written, verse 17, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to the hope, in hope, believed, so that he might become, uh, or became, the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So let's kind of break it on down here as, um, as we, we notice this, this last little section here. Uh, he's talking about the promise that is given to Abraham that he's going to have many children. And I remind people of this fact all the time. The promise to Abraham was, your, your descendants will be as many as the sand in the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. Okay, how many kids did Abraham have? Can you count them? Well, there's a few more than that. Actually, he marries Keturah after the death of Sarai, and he has several more kids, but he has two that are written in in text of Scripture because there's a conflict, by the way, overseas between these brothers still today. Isaac and Ishmael. Those two, now I can count. You know, I went to school at Logan Rogersville High School in southwest Missouri, but I can count one, two. Can you count one, two, right? I feel like Elmo up here, right? One, two. Question. Was that as many as the sand on the seashore? Was that as many as the stars in the sky? But that's the promise that was made to Abraham. I'm going to give you so many descendants, you can't even count them. One, two. And you get... Six or eight kids with Keturah. That's act text. Almost 10 kids, right around 10 kids. I can count that, okay? Then he has Isaac, who's the son of the promise, who he goes to sacrifice, and God allows the, the ram to be cut, uh, caught in the thicket, and they sacrifice that instead of him. You know the story. Isaac then has kids, right? How many kids does Isaac have? One, two. Again, I'm, a, I'm an old Country boy, but one, two. I count one, two. So, did Abraham's kid have more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky? I could count one, two, three, four. I could count. All right. Isaac becomes the son of the promise. He then has children. How many kids does Isaac have? Or how does Jacob have? Uh, Jacob has about 13 kids. You got Dinah and the 12 sons. So, Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 13, 12 boys through two different, actually through four different women. And so, but I can count that number, right? So we're talking about 100 plus years after the covenant was originally made with Abraham that Abraham's eyes didn't see it. He didn't see the promise. Isaac, his eyes never saw the promise fulfilled. He, he walked his whole life and never saw the descendants as far as the sand on the seashore. Jacob dies an old man in Egypt. He's finally brought to Egypt by his son Joseph, who they had thought they had, had uh, traded away and probably had been dead for a long time when he uh, basically reveals himself as the second in command of Egypt. And, and in this moment, Jacob is overwhelmed. You know, hey, God has blessed this child. He's blessed Joseph with the promises. But these 12 tribes... We can count their numbers. It's, it's getting bigger. They estimate that 400 years later, there could have been around a million or about a million and a half, 1.2 million followers that were led out of Egypt after the plagues. Well, that's a lot, but I can count that. You can count that. Did, after 400 years of waiting, that did, did we see... The stars of the sky descendants, the the sand on the seashore, we did not. They did not see it. Jacob didn't see it. Joseph didn't see it. Twelve tribes didn't see it. Levi's tribe didn't see it. And You got Moses. Moses didn't see it. Moses' sons didn't see it. Moses' grandsons didn't see it. That fulfillment, as many as you can see, was made to Abraham in faith that if he would believe, it would happen. But his eyes never saw it. It's the reason why the Hebrew writer puts into perspective that he, and you know, the Bible says even though while he was almost dead in his body, he still gave birth to, he still had a child. So in this moment, he doesn't see it because walking by faith is what Abraham did. His faith was not by sight. He knew God would keep his promise it didn't have to be in his lifetime. It didn't have to be in his kid's lifetime or his grandkid's lifetime or his great-grandkid's lifetime. The promise of Abraham that was made 4,000 years ago is still being fulfilled today because heaven will be populated with as many as you can count. If you don't believe that, read Revelation. He says, you know, he talks about 144,000. And then right after that, he goes, you know what, I can't count it. The multitude's so many, I can't even number. All of the ones that are here So the promise of Abraham was not just immediate. It's the same promise given to Adam and Eve. Through your seed, this serpent will be crushed. Okay? Cain and Abel came along. Did they crush the head of Satan? Nope. Had Seth. Did Seth crush the head of Satan? No. It would take 4,000 years from the promise in the garden until Jesus comes to the cross. So when God makes a promise... You may not see it, but you better believe it. Because walking in faith, not by sight, is what God requires of us. So, Abraham, he's not saved because of the law, the law hadn't been written. He's not saved because of circumcision, because that hadn't even been practiced yet. He's not saved because he's doing all these great works because he had to have faith first. But when you put it together, you see all these things, one by one by one, help in fulfilling the promise. And that comes to these last little verses, and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. I already read verse 18, so let's start at 19. And I, being weak in faith, he didn't consider his own body, although already dead. There it is. He, he was so old. You, you know, well, I shouldn't make any... Uh, I told the class this morning, we've got some people up in Washington, look like they're walking dead. But anyway, already dead. He's, he's walking around like he's a zombie. And since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness, the, the inability for Sarah to conceive, it says the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that he was, that what he had promised he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. I love Paul's commentary. He's, All those things are important. I mean, the fact that he was so old, and she was so old, and they still conceived a child because in faith they believed God would keep his promise, so therefore they kept theirs. That's why it was accounted to them for righteousness. And fully convinced, he says, he was convinced that God was going to keep the promise even if he didn't see it. He didn't have to see it. Too many times we want verification. And I've had people tell me before, I'll believe in God when I see a miracle. I'll believe in God when I see something amazing. And usually I'll say something like this. Did you brush your teeth this morning? Did you shave this morning? If it's a guy, you know. There's a guy I shave with every day, right? Every time you look in a mirror, you see a miracle. You say, well, that sounds a little... Maybe that's exaggerated, right? Maybe, maybe that's not a miracle. Maybe childbirth is not a miracle. Childbirth is a natural process, and we know that. We know it's natural, and we know how it happens, right? But the miracle is not the flesh that's born. The miracle is the eternal soul that God places inside of that little lump of flesh. We are only here because it is God's will. And so it may not be by hands miraculous, it may not be by anything human miraculous, but when you are born into this world, and God places something that is not physical, because you're born of flesh, not physical, but he takes something spiritual that I can't weigh it, I can't see it, I have no idea how it got there, but God places it inside of that flesh and you become a human being. I believe that that spirit is placed inside that little lump of flesh as soon as it's conceived. I do not believe that, that later on in the process of the birth, that suddenly, just before, just before there is the birth process, that they suddenly become a human. I believe at the moment of conception... When God places that eternal soul inside of that flesh, that is a human being. I will will die on that hill. So Abraham recognizes that this process that God was doing was something amazing. And he could look in the mirror. He could look in the water. He could look look at all of the blessings God had provided and know that he would keep his word. God will always keep his promise. Uh, Back to verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So Paul gives this example of hope, and he says this is the hope that we have that what God did through Abraham because of his faith, God can still do through us because of faith. Having a hope, having a trust, having a belief that God will keep his promises is what kept Noah alive on the ark. It's what kept Abraham alive and pursuing the, the, the great promise of God in the desert, in the wilderness. It's why Jacob, it's why Isaac, his father, and why they for several hundred years wandered the desert without a homeland because they believed in the promise That was given to Abraham. Isaac didn't see it. Isaac didn't hear it. Think about that faith. That Isaac believed that God would provide for him. That Jacob believed based on what Isaac had told him. But neither one of them had the experience that Abraham had. None of them heard the promise that was given to Abraham. But by faith they believed their father and their grandfather. And so what we have, if we have a strong faith in God, we pass that on down to the next generation. And so Paul says that that promise given to Abraham has been passed to all generations. And there are some that are children of Abraham out there now that do not hear God's voice. They do not follow God's word, but they still can come to faith and salvation because of Abraham. And they can be saved because of Jesus' death on the cross. So what the cross does... Is it erases both lines. Here is, here is the uh, picture in a very, very um, simplistic way. Under the old law, there were Jews and there was everybody else. Under the law, you had those that followed the Ten Commandments and everybody else. You had people that believed in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. They memorized it. They studied it. They sat in temple. They sat in tabernacles before that. And those people were on this side and everybody else was on this side. And what God does is at the moment Jesus dies on the cross, that the veil in the temple is split from top to bottom. So that middle wall separation is taken away. No need for a priesthood anymore. And also by Jesus' death on that cross, it erases thousands of years, basically, of history. Not erases, but fulfills all these thousands of years of history. And now a new covenant is made with God's people at Pentecost. And when the church is established, now anybody can come in. It's not just one specific race. It's not one specific nation. It's not one specific group of people. It has nothing to do with who your daddy is. It has nothing to do with, with what your great-great-great-great-grandfather decided you were going to uh, practice in your religion. Now, every person is given the choice whether they want to be saved or they want to be lost. And so it, it breaks down that middle wall. It fulfills the old law and the prophets, and it starts with a clean slate. And that's the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross for all of mankind. It's why the Great Commission is given just a few verses after the story in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke where he says, go into all the world. You know, go teach people. Go share the good news. And it is because of the apostles and getting the message out that people were saved in Jerusalem. The promise was given in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the whole ends of the earth. And that's where the gospel reaches every single person. And so those that are children of Abraham by birth or children of Abraham by faith, they're all going to receive the same reward of salvation if they, are, if they were true to the old law before the cross and they are followers of Jesus after the cross. And so we're saved. Our faith helps in that justification process, but it is also our works. It is also our obedience that God takes into consideration. Anybody can believe. Uh, I can believe all day long in something that doesn't make it happen. Um, faith is important, but it's just the first step among several others. All right, so I'm going to pause here for a minute, see if you have any questions. Who wants to run the mic? Anybody? Nathan's hesitant a little bit. You're the man. All right, so let's talk about this. And I want to be sensitive to this fact, too. I posted something on Facebook today. Uh, I, I worried a little bit about this chapter this evening because of what's going on in our world. Uh, we want to be sensitive to the fact, uh, but this is what Scripture says. Um, so what are your thoughts about Uh, Abraham and his faith or of the the religion of the Jews and of the old covenant. Anybody have an idea as to why God thought there was a necessity to start over? Why did God say that Jesus had to come and fulfill the law to be able to start anew? Anybody? Was there something wrong with the old law? I've been asked that before. Was it was it was there something wrong with it? Did God make did God make it and then go, "Man, that's a little harder than I thought it would be." To so let's start over. No. That's not the reason for it. Not at all. Did you have your hand up? What's the what's the answer? I didn't I didn't necessarily have to apply my heart or my conscientious thinking when I to have a sacrifice for my sins. Yeah. Okay. All right. What else? Anybody else have a thought? Yeah, the blood of bulls and goats, but temporary. That was not meant to be permanent. Yeah. Right, so maybe the old law was more of a, a works-driven religion. Uh, God calls them children, so let's do it. Yeah, you couldn't keep it perfectly. That's right, couldn't keep it perfectly. Yeah. While it was, while it was I'm sorry, while it was... Um, while it was great that the Jews had God directly communicating with them and they were his chosen people, it also meant that they were held to something of a higher standard. Yeah. Because you look at Romans back in Romans 2, like verses like 14 through 16, where it talks about the Gentiles who mm-hmm. kind of naturally kind of try to follow God's law. And you think about people, folks like the Ninevites who Jonah was sent to who repented and whatnot, Five. who maybe they weren't being held quite to the same standard as the Jews because they weren't given the law, but yet God still accounted for them in some way. Right. It had had its place. They had their place, too. Um, I think about children as an example. Uh, Have you ever told your kids, well, we'll do that when you do such and such? You know, like, we'll go to the movies or we'll go to the store as soon as you clean your room. You know, or what's worse, my mom, when my brother and I would fight, I would rather do anything than have to hug my brother and kiss him on the cheek. But my mother would make us do that. That was torture to a child. And I remember uh, there was an episode of Cheers that we had watched a few nights before this incident, and there's a thing where, where um, Sam's unable to say I love you. He can't, oh, he can't get it out. And so my mom says, you got to tell him you love him and kiss him on the cheek. I started going, I love you know. Well, i got a whipping for that, but... Um, I hated having to kiss my brother on the cheek, but my mother would tell us to do it and we had to do it. Was I obedient? Absolutely, I was obedient. Was my heart in it? No, that's the old law. They did it because they were told to do it. They did it because they knew if they didn't, there'd be consequences. But a lot of people followed the old law out of simply obedience and works and their heart was not there the reason why Isaiah prophesied, and Jesus has to preach it a few times to the, to the Pharisees, that they, their heart was where the problem was. It wasn't the outside stuff. You got the outside stuff. Man, you, he says, you were, you know, you, you out here, you got this nice whitewashed, you ever going to a cemetery and see big mausoleums. Jesus says, y'all are great mausoleums. I mean, you're just as clean and shiny, but inside dead, rotting bones. So faith for many years was a works-based religious effort. You did this, you did this. Is there a question? Nope. Good. Just like you would do with your parents. You did it because you were told you had to do it. But what happens along the way is they didn't really study and research why they had to do it. They didn't realize the significance. If they had been told, and I'm sure that there were good rabbis and good priests that explained it on certain days and at the festivals, and if they had read the Bible through, they would know this. But each sacrifice of each Passover lamb, every single year, talk about the Day of Atonement, every single year, those sins were rolled forward. They were not permanent. The Hebrew writer makes this very clear. Bulls and goats can't save. They were only a temporary thing. Think of it like a deposit, okay? You go, you want to buy something. Remember a layaway? You know, you go to Walmart, you, buy, you go pick up a bunch of stuff in a cart, and then you go pay it and slowly pay it off. Well, this is a debt, and the debt the, the debt, the wages of sin, is death. Not the death of an animal, but the death of humanity. We all deserve eternal condemnation. So what God says is, I'm going to ask you to make these sacrifices to roll the debt forward. Those actions they took were not just about what they did, but it was about why they did it. And they should have thought, as I lay this sacrifice down today, there's going to be a day coming when the Passover lamb, they're taught this, you go back to Exodus chapter 12, they knew one day there would be a great Passover lamb that would die for all of humanity. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch's reading in Isaiah 53 when when Philip catches him on the chariot. They were taught this. They knew that one day somebody would die. So every single time they offered a sacrifice, they thought one day we won't have to do this anymore. Well, Jesus did that on the cross. So all their sins were rolled forward. Well, now you and I, we sin, we ask for forgiveness, and we, we, we declare that we're not going to do it again. We practice repentance, and our sins are rolled backward to the cross, the cross is the turning point of human history. All sin is spared. All, sa- all souls are saved because of Jesus' sacrifice. And he had to live a perfect life in order to accomplish that for both the Old Covenant and for the New Covenant. It is the central, key, most important point in history. Jesus' death. So that's the way I look at it. Is all those Passover lambs and all those sacrifices, bulls, goats, everything move forward. And ours now are rolled backward to that turning point of history. That makes sense. What are the thoughts you have about this this theme, this topic? Do you think there are people who are of faith that are not saved? The Bible tells us that faith is a step. So there are many people who believe. They wholeheartedly believe that there is a God. Some people may even believe that they're saved, and they might not be. Uh, Again, we have to go back to Scripture. We say, what does the Bible teach about salvation? And this is a simple uh, illustration. So when it comes to the sacrifice of Jesus, why could Jesus not just be hung? So they hung him on a tree. That's one way to put it. Why wasn't it with a rope? No bones are to be broken. That's right. Prophecy from the Psalms. There was no blood. In a hanging, there would not be a shedding of blood. In a sacrifice, and I know maybe maybe you have already eaten today. We studied Leviticus for about six or eight weeks at um, a church where I preached for a long time. And people started, they're like, Leviticus, really? You're going to study Leviticus? I said, probably the only time in your whole life that a preacher preaches a series on Leviticus. But bear with me, it's going to be interesting. And so we spent like six or eight weeks studying the book. And what we found was the emphasis is always the shedding of blood, shedding of blood, shedding of blood, shedding of blood. Shedding of blood. And when the priest would offer the sacrifices, a sacrifice, like Abraham's a great example. And all of our storybooks, bless them, I, they're completely wrong. All these, all, these, uh, all these Bibles with the pictures in it, you know, I see this and I see, I see you know, this is Isaac on the altar, you know, and you've seen it. He's got the knife like this, and the angel's holding his hands. You remember that? That's not biblical. That's not biblical. That's not how you kill a lamb or a sheep or a goat. You do it like this. When Abraham puts the knife to his son's neck, it is to drain the blood. I don't have to tell you, there's a, there's a vein right here. Leads to an artery, this little section here. If you get cut here, you won't make it to the hospital. You won't. You'll be dead before you can holler for help. That is how you slit a sacrifice. The intention of of sacrifice was to drain all of the blood from the lamb. As Jesus is on the cross, his hands are pierced, his feet are pierced, his head is bleeding. We know his back was just awful. I don't think we could... I don't, know. I don't know that any of us could have stomached to see what Jesus' back looked like. But there comes along a Roman soldier who pierces Jesus' side. And do you remember what it said that came out? Blood and water. As he punctures it, and you know, there's, there's some talk about it being the heart, or the sack around the heart where they were aiming for. That blood that dripped out of his side was more than likely the last drops of blood from his body. Jesus literally was drained as a sacrifice. So the blood had to be precious and pure. He lived a perfect life. But it also had to be drained. And so then they lay him down and they put him in the tomb, and, and we know the rest of the story. But it is, a, uh, it is meant to be not just grotesque, not just to be a terrible image we really glorify the cross probably more than, than the apostles ever thought we would. But the idea is it had to be done just exactly perfectly right. And sometimes the attitude of those that brought bulls and goats was, I have to do this. That's, I'm, 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 I promised my parents I'd bring the sacrifices three times a year, so here I am. But Jesus gave himself willingly. In fact, he says in John 10, there ain't nobody take my wife. I will lay my life down willingly. I will lay down willingly. No man understands love. No greater love, he says, than to lay down your life for your friends, and he calls his disciples his friends. So Jesus' sacrifice had to be bloody, and it had to be complete. So there's a lot of things that take place there. From Psalm 22, if you read Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53, you get the picture of how brutal the cross would have been. But the necessity of it, was there all of us had to all of us had to be saved old and new covenant yes the reason the blood is so important is because the blood holds the life that's great that's right that's right go back to Genesis life is in the blood life is in the blood so it had to be a shedding of blood that's a great point really good what are the thoughts or questions all right I'll close with this uh, thought, and as we, as we talk about what's going on in our world, pray for our country, pray for our nation, pray for our soldiers that uh, are in a land fighting a war that began with Abraham. Uh, they moved the uh, USS uh, Gerald Ford there yesterday. There's another carrier on its way there now. It doesn't mean that our soldiers will be in battle, but they sure are targets, at this point, sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean. So be in prayer for our soldiers, uh, be in prayer for our allies overseas, and also for our enemies. Sometimes the best way to to destroy an enemy is from within, and we need to pray some level heads and open hearts that are on the other side, look at the atrocities that they have committed and say, we've gone too far. So I want us to leave with prayer tonight. If you will, let's bow together. God, we praise you and thank you again for the night, for the Bible study that we get to enjoy, the the texts of Scripture that were penned by Paul from a prison cell and still impact our hearts today. We pray your blessings be upon us as your people, and we pour out our prayers for this nation right now. We pray for our men and women that are now in harm's way. We pray for the wisdom of our leaders, especially for our generals and those that are there making decisions on the ground. We pray for uh, our allies, especially for those in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv that have just faced an onslaught of terrorism and thousands of deaths and horrific deaths. We pray, Father, that you'll be with those families that grieve. And also, Father, we pray for our enemies and for the enemies of Israel, that uh, they would see this as barbaric, as evil, and that they might repent of their ways and turn to you. Father, we pray for justice. We pray also, Father, for uh, those that are in a position to, f- to finalize or to complete this conflict, that it be done quickly. We know we pray for peace a lot, Lord, and sometimes uh, that's not present because of the enemy, our devil. The devil, the, our enemy every day, we know that he is out there seeking whom he can devour. And we pray that your church will rise up in prayer, And that we will focus on the good things we can do to help those in need. And please, God, please help this country to once again put you first. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldswrap.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.